Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and today I want to do some summing up of the work that we've been doing on Orientalism, bringing it together then with a Western understanding, an Eastern understanding of the death drive, and biblical understanding. In the Netflix series Mindhunter, which dramatizes the beginnings of FBI profiling, which arises because of what are called serial killers, what Douglas, Johnny Douglas, who is the one whose this work is based upon, recognized, is something that is a training in psychology and psychology analysis that of course Freud is the first to bring out is that what you see in extreme cases of mental illness is that something like random murders often follow a a pattern traceable to particular psychological types and of course this is precisely what Freud is doing in the clinic is that His presupposition is that neurosis or psychosis is a type of the common human orientation or disease. It's just an extreme form of this. And so Douglas is actually applying a kind of Freudian psychoanalysis to crime that masochism, sadism, which of course are directly connected to the death drive, that is that literal killing is connected, bears upon human criminality, human sickness, human disease, just in extreme form. And what he's doing in typing is to recognize that the experience of the killer and the patterns, then you can predict future behavior. And in the broadest terms, psychoanalysis is built upon the presupposition that the human disease, and of course this is the way Freud is talking because he's a medical doctor, is subject to prognosis because it follows regular patterns with identifiable causes and effects. Now, where I'm taking this is to say that when we look at a, you know, you look at a particular individual, an extreme type of a particular individual, or you look at a culture with the particular types that are produced in that culture, you're going to find patterns. And what we're supposed to conclude about these patterns is not as we've described in, or Japanese psychoanalysts describe that they're in some way unique. But what we're going to say that here is a type, and the more the disease, the more the neurosis or psychosis, or the more this type has a grip on an individual, on a culture, the more their behavior, their thought, will follow a predictable pattern. We might almost call it mechanical, that you can begin to predict it. And so the more the disease will present itself. And in terms of destructive behavior, like murder, or the more the individual is given over to compulsion, whatever that compulsion might be, whether it's destructive or whatever, the more predictable their behavior. That is, the sicker the individual, the less individuality intrudes into this, the more you can understand the pattern. And so in this sense, a serial killer presents the perfect object of study as they have relinquished control, and this is the way they describe it themselves, you know, that in the series Mindhunter, you know, that they interview the, the people and that they literally describe that they've lost control. They've lost control to compulsions, and these compulsions are totally destructive. And so those who are most out of control better demonstrate the nature of the cause and effect power which animates their actions. And so the perfect 
presentation of the disease is to be found in pure death drive, pure destruction. I, I think this applies to Hannah Arendt's picture in the case of someone like Adolf Eichmann that we normally wouldn't have thought of Eichmann, you know, in Germany. He would have been a, considered a healthy individual. And of course, what Hannah Arendt concludes about Eichmann is that two things come together and she refers to a kind of radical evil and a banality of evil. The terms actually, and she did not seem to recognize this, these terms are in fact contradictory. But the contradiction, it sort of coincides at Eichmann. We understand why she arrives there. Because it is precisely his desire to be the perfect bureaucrat. That is, he's a type of the perfect German, the perfect German bureaucrat who is going to give himself completely to serving the national socialism the nazi cause this is his identity this is his he feels this is what he's good at and this of course explains the genocide that he brings about or helps bring about where hannah arndt had envisioned a kind of diabolical monster you know, one who is radically evil or creatively evil prior to seeing Eichmann. What she encountered in the flesh was someone without, she says, the capacity to think. The perfect bureaucrat, that is, he is not extrapolating or creative, he's just executing orders without admixture of creativity or really of much personality whatsoever. That is, the greater the sickness, the more that he is a bureaucrat, the more his individuality is leaked out. And, of course, what, where we're going with this is to say that Eichmann is a case in point of every good citizen. That is, that just as one who is extremely sick is losing the capacity to think, so too one who is a perfectly good citizen, a perfectly good bureaucrat. Eichmann is a type, then, I think, of what we're going to look at, not just in Japan, but in the West. Eichmann, the mass murderer, resembles the serial killer in that he has relinquished his own powers of thought. He's very good at figuring the movement of trains and timetables, and he does this because his own thought really is reduced to the regular order of the machines that he's tracing, ultimately a machine in which he was only a bureaucratic cog. And this gets at the resolution, then, I think, to the contradiction between Arendt's two terms, radical evil or that which seems to be self-generating and without purpose beyond itself is inhuman by definition. Human evil is always banal in that it reduces the individual to forces beyond their control and it is these forces seemingly all-powerful and infinitely destructive which necessarily portray radical evil coincident then with the reduction of human freedom. The failing of Arendt to recognize the contradiction may have been, in fact, it, she, she brings these two things together. It's, a, it's quite a profound insight, despite the contradiction. Radical evil makes itself known at the point where stupidity and banality have completely corroded humanity. And the form that this corrosion takes, you know, whether serial killer, mass murderer, sociopath, psychopath, Adolf Hitler, Ted Bundy, or good citizen Q, the picture is one in which radical evil is identified then with perfectly fitting uh, the purposes of a human society then that is in some way gone wrong. Normally we would think shame, humiliation, that these things would enter in. 
But in some way, these things are then set aside, though they may be ever-present. What you see in the, the series, and I think what you would see in these individual lives, is that they've been subjected to shame, humiliation, uh, control, revenge. They've passed through this, and they've, they've come out the other side then that they're sick and they're sick that the sickness has a, a genealogy transitioning then back to Japan. I think we're seeing the same thing. That is that in, in Japan, the frustration of amai comes through social isolation and no opportunity to amayadu. Freudian theory is captured in his explanation and remembering, repeating, and working through, and it's built upon the idea, the notion that symptoms are formed in early childhood and are compulsively repeated in destructive thoughts or behaviors. And so the symptom is a resistant formation which intervenes in remembering. At first, Freud turned to hypnosis to bring out these repressed memories, but hypnosis focused as it is on the past, fails to address the present symbolic significance of the resistance. You know, like a shoe fetish will be understood only through tapping into both the specific experience of the individual in the past and the present symbolic universe which results. And so too in the analysis the goal is not simply to dig up a forgotten memory but to deal with the symbolic significance the memory takes in the present. The symptom is an accessible memory which is kept symbolically alive in the present through repetition. It is compulsively repeated and it is the present symbolism and its repetition, which has to be intervened in or worked through. That's the goal of therapy. The problem which confronted Freud and which becomes obvious in the television series on Mindhunter is the degree to which resistances and symptoms become definitive of the individual. You know, can the serial killer stop killing or does he enjoy his symptoms such that the symptom is all that, he, that, that is left, that is, that he is this symptom. And as Freud developed his understanding of the death drive, he came to recognize the possibility that the ego itself, along with the superego, it's be a resistance formation, which is to say that his whole theory begins to uh, be in danger because what he's arriving at, and he comes close to saying this, is that the very formation of human personality is the resistance. It is the symptom that we are all symptoms of a disease, that the superego, ego formation over the death drive is all itself a reaction formation. That is, the very substance of what he had previously presumed to be the core of the individual, now it seems to be the symptom. And so the, the problem caused him to question the efficacy of analysis. You know, as he writes the, the short article analysis, terminable or interminable. He wondered whether being human entailed an incurable disease, not just in our mortality, but in the resistance, the ego, superego, to our mortality, which is his definition of the death drive, is the problem of the serial killer, the human problem, is the problem that we face in neurosis and psychosis, a type then, a formation, a symptom of the human problem, in that we can only enjoy the various symptoms out of which we are constituted. Our only choice then seems to be 
to enjoy our symptom, in Zizek's phrase. Are we tied to resistance and repetition such that we are our resistances, compulsively repeated so as to make up the course of our life? This is precisely the way, then, that Doi is depicting the Japanese sense of awareness, that is, of even having a sense of self, presumes the existence of an inner desire to amayaru. He notes that in Japanese, it is common to speak of having no self when referring to someone who is unable to check a mind, which again is indicative that we're dealing here with death drive. But it's interesting that Doi himself then is depicting the Japanese predicament as the way that Freud comes to understand the problem when he proposes the death drive. That is, that it may be that all we're left with when we have a self is the symptom. The awareness of self in the normal person, Doi says, comes about as a sense of opposition to am I. There is the sense that one is in the way of oneself, he says, since one cannot get rid of the hindrance. One ends up by coming to look on oneself as a hindrance instead. And so from a Freudian standpoint, there is a kind of convergence in later Freud and Doi that life stands in the way of death. Freud will almost say as much that the human person or the human personality is just that thing that appears on the way to death and where death is the primary drive, the continuation of self is felt simply as a symptom, as a frustration of that drive. So self is experienced as a point of frustration in which a my or death-like dependent has not had its way. As Doi explains in The Mentally Ill, the frustration of a my comes about through social isolation, no opportunity to a And in this case, one can apprehend self only in terms of being obstructed by someone having, he quotes here, his brains picked or being managed by someone. The oceanic feeling or primary narcissism, which is a mind, is blocked and there is the desire for revenge to gain victory in some field of competition to gain a sense of fulfillment or omnipotence. To be a part of an indulgent group then satisfies this narcissistic need. To have too strong a sense of self is to have a strong sense then of frustrated amai, which is actually to lose the self. What he's saying here is exactly the same thing. Your symptom resistant to amai is the self. And he will talk about, Doi talks about this, the small self of the individual must be obliterated in favor of the larger self acting in concert with the group. And it is only this larger self, once expressed, you know, through the emperor or the nation, that he can come completely to accommodate the need to amayaru or to lose the small self. That is, having the large self enables the one to cut off the small self, and the small self offers no place of refuge, so that apart from the group, the individual feels, I've no self to go back into. In Freudian terms, to have one's small self cut off is to submit to castration. It is to be able to be like the mother, or to return apart from sexuality to the mother to the group, to the horde, and to thus achieve immortality and omnipotence, which is primary narcissism. And you do this then through group immortality. 
in biological terms the multicellular organism and Freud always is he likes to go back and depict things biologically that the multicellular organism survives as a community of cells even though individual cells the individual have to die to preserve it as Kenji Otsuki puts it the national family system of the Japanese can be analyzed biologically speaking, as the immortal bioplasma protected and surrounded by a constant supply of mortal soma. That is, the individual is only so much temporary flesh through which the immortal blood of the nation, of the spirit of the race, can flow. Freud develops his notion of the death instinct. You know, this is in, it's entitled The Dependent Relationships of the Ego. That is, he's, I think Freud and Doy are coming together here. And this chapter then will make the same connections that Doy makes with Amai between sadism, masochism, narcissism, and morbidity. Doy, you know, you might conclude, is embarked on a program of finding native terms really expressing various phases that he's finding in Freud that Freud marks out in this final section of his last major work. The very title might explain what has set Doy on his quest of explaining Japan through dependency the dependent relationship. This is exactly what he's describing. The crucial difference is that for Doi, Amai is not a process of suppression and negation, which that's the primary role that Freud sees for the death instinct. But the web of links between Doi's theory and Freud's death instinct, I think it leaves no question that Amai then fits into Freud's latter theory. And so beyond the clear link with death as a form of eternal life, Doi makes the connection with sadism, masochism, which of course is the identifying mark of the death instinct in Freud. Doi explains the connecting logic of the words in a character from Natsume Soseki's Kokoro. I'm quoting here, The memory of having kneeled before someone makes him want to trample him underfoot at a later date. The same character portrays the soft homosexuality that Doi says arises pervasively in Japanese society because of the primary identification with mother. It is this homosexuality arrived at through identification with mother and the love of oneself that Freud will link with the primary configuration in a masochistic dependency. In Doi's words, he identifies with his mother, he becomes his mother, as it were, and thus comes to love objects that are similar to the self. Freud connects this in terms of masochism. It is a turn to masochism. A domineering father may result in the superego becoming sadistic, while the ego becomes masochistic, that is to say, at bottom, passive in a feminine way. A great need for punishment develops in the ego, which in part offers itself as a victim to fate. You know, this, I think, goes back to the unconscious guilt. He says it in part finds satisfaction in ill treatment by the superego that is, in the sense of guilt. 
Doi explains the hindrance of self that one feels in terms of feeling and needing to feel victimized. And this victim mentality that Doi says is the underlying component of Amai fits the Freudian notion of a domineering superego, think here Japanese society, the emperor, the company, wanting to punish the ego. And so Amai is the passive submission to that punishment of the ego and the resulting feeling of being a victim, which is the very means of then of being part of uh, submitting to the superego. And so Doi follows Freud in seeing this need to feel victimized as a means of assuaging guilt. Quote, since it is through identifying with the victim that they deny their own individual existence and thus it seems deny their sense of guilt. And so the sense of guilt, quote, is an expression of regret at having permitted a case for regret to remain. It is self-reproach. This is Doi for allowing oneself to fall into a situation where one is obliged to feel regret. It is the word employed to express sympathy with the bereaved and is connected to the, the aggression that is turned against the self in depression or outwardly in anger. Doi says this kuyami, uh, this guilt, is the outrage of discovering an obstacle to a mind. So death of another would be an obstacle, and it's recognized as an affront to one's ability to amayado. It involves a kind of double-edged guilt of feeling guilty yet feeling guilty, or as Doi explains, of being annoying, vexatious, mortifying. It is why, Doi says, Japanese heroes are usually those who have suffered misfortune or defeat, which is a sign of a kind of moral masochism. It is a feeling not of something repellent, but which they oddly enough seem to cherish. He says they identify with those historical figures such as Saigo Tokomori and the 47 Ronin who committed ritual suicide because by exalting them they seek to achieve a catharsis of their own guilt. This comfortable masochism internalizes feelings of aggression, taking comfort then in self-destruction. Freud describes guilty morbidity, what Doi is calling kuyamu, as a full and pure expression of the death instinct. This is Freud. How is it that the superego manifests itself essentially as a sense of guilt, or rather as criticism for the sense of guilt, it is the perception in the ego answering to this criticism. And this, moreover, develops such extraordinary harshness and severity towards the ego. If we turn to melancholia first, we find that the excessively strong superego, which has obtained a hold upon consciousness, rages against the ego with merciless violence, as if it had taken possession of the whole of the sadism available in the person concerned. What is now holding sway in the superego is, as it were, a pure culture of the death instinct. And in fact, it often succeeds in driving the ego into death, end of quote. And so the ego is put in a position of being overwhelmed or annihilated by the id and the superego. And so to give in completely to a feeling of dependency, you know, for uh, doys am I, is to give in to this feeling. It would seem that the mechanism of the fear of death can only be that the ego relinquishes, this is Freud, its narcissistic libidinal cathexis, 
in a very large measure. That is that it gives up itself. And so Doy uses the Freudian term moral masochism, which Freud had described as the working out of a sense of guilt brought on by tension between the ego and the superego. The superego seeks to punish the ego, to destroy it, or to eat it up. In sadism, an outward expression of masochism, Doi points out that the man wants to lick someone, or to eat or swallow them, or to dominate them. And he says this has simply turned his need to amai outward. It's the death instinct. In masochism, it is the superego in the form ultimately of destiny, which seeks to, this is Freud, to swallow the ego. Very same language. And so those Japanese figures who gladly succumb to destiny through death portray the ego ideal of the Japanese individual. Those Japanese who literally ate each other during the war, maybe they were displaying a form of unfulfilled amai. And so there, there's a very fine line between sadism and masochism. Freud explains the sadism of the superego and the masochism of the ego supplement each other and unite to produce the same effects. It is only in this way, I think, that we can understand how the suppression of an instinct can frequently or quite generally result in a sense of guilt and how a person's conscience becomes more severe and more sensitive the more he refrains from aggression against others. That is, the suppression of the death instinct results in feelings of guilt that must be assuaged in outward or inward aggression. The suppression of the death instinct Doi describes, uh, he says this is the what gives rise to social activists in Japan. They're suffering he says, from unsatisfied am I. They've traded a moral masochism for a moral sadism, and suppressed am I afflicts those striving for independence. That is, they're causing trouble, and the reason they're causing trouble is it's misdirected. Uh, aggression, unsatisfied am I. Reason itself stands against am I, though, in this striving for independence in its aggression. This is doi. Modern man, too, having tried everything in reliance on reason, is beginning to despair of self. Beyond doubt, scientific civilization has flaunted the power of man for all to see. Yet this no longer, as it once did, serves man as an inspiration. Men sense a drying up of the springs of life, and in order to recover what has been lost, they determine that they will return, as it will, to their naked selves, will live once more by feeding feeling rather than reason. And in this new quest they are being led, it seems, just as it is suggested in the closing lines of Faust, to the maternal, in other words, to a my. That is, there is a my, and there is reason, and reason stands over and against a my. And the satisfaction of a my, in overt terms, must end, though, Doy says, in disillusionment. For in a modern age of freedom, Independent self displaces the sense of solidarity inculcated with a mind. Healthy a mind finds its satisfaction where the individual is not struggling against society. It is a narcissistic as a mind, as Doy calls it, meaning it is interdirected, even lacking, he says, a reality principle. And this interdirected amai may result in morbid states of mind, but it is not an unpleasurable morbidity. It is a feeling treated with respect, he says. In melancholia, Freud explains, 
The ego ventures no objection. It admits its guilt and submits to the punishment. That is, I think that Doi is describing what Freud is calling melancholia. Dependence, then, a my, as explained by Doi, concurs with Freud's notion that a mechanism or secondary means arises for the individual to negate death by actively participating in dying. It is controlled death or death at one's choosing, but it is a dying that is aimed at negating death. The organism, Freud explains, wishes to die only in its own fashion. And so the primal act of the human ego is not to accept the reality of separation from the mother's body in Freud's picture, which can only lead to death. And so in Freudian theory, this negation of reality is a negation of self, repression, and negation of the environment, aggression, and dependence, or a denial of separation from the mother, indicates a repression of death. And then, of course, of the individual self brought into consciousness as a negation, death not accepted. And so it is a negation that dilutes death and makes it intellectually acceptable only by deflecting arrows. Freud describes it as a desexualization of life or refusal of growth through the psychosexual stages. So that indulgence of ego dependency, in Freud's definition at least, is to give up life and love due to a fear of death, what he calls melancholia. The fear of death in melancholia only admits of one explanation, that the ego gives itself up because it feels hated and persecuted by the superego, Freud says, instead of love. It sees itself deserted by all protecting forces and lets itself die. Here, moreover, is once again the same situation as that which underlay the first great anxiety state of birth and the infantile anxiety of longing, the anxiety due to separation from the protecting mother, end quote. So am I, in Freud, would be the primary mechanism of the death instinct, while for Doi it can constitutes primary reality. And so that we've got two pictures here, both that are pretty dark, both in which, you know, really what Freud is coming down to and what Doi are coming down to is that the self is a symptom formation. I think in a biblical picture that maybe this is simply the, the formation of the eye. I mean, it is the, Paul's picture and it is the picture in Genesis. That is that what is sin is not simply a one-off failure in behavior, but a power or force which is at the core of who we are. What if it is in fact so definitive that the ego is itself a formation which must be undone? I think that's the biblical picture. Obviously this cannot be a very pleasant prospect, at least from the vantage of this I in Paul's you know, words, maybe it, or Jesus' words to Paul, maybe it's a kicking against the goads so as to resist conversion. Maybe every conversion must involve overcoming of certain resistances and symptoms that are entrenched with age, with enculturation. C.S. Lewis describes his own conversion as a kind of a terrible experience. He describes it as an unpleasant sensation of melting, as he recognizes he cannot resist, but he's being undone by this. Death and rebirth describe a process that may be quite unpleasant, not pleasant. Paul's description of sin, tied up as it is with desire, 
is such that it is channeled by and gives itself over to desire. That is, the sin is a fulfillment of desire, and resistance to that must be unpleasant. Paul claims that there is an ultimate relinquishing of the will in which it is no longer I. You know, this is the giving over. This is the enjoying your symptom. It's no longer I that am doing it, but it's sin within me, sin which animates the doing. Desire, you know, in both the description of serial killers and in in Paul's description, becomes all-consuming and definitive of the self. But so too in the depiction of Amai in Doi, and so too in Freud's depiction of the rising of the symptom as identical with the self. To resist this defining desire must be to refuse the allure of ultimate pleasure, which of course is the body of death, and Paul is the death drive in Freud. And so the final pleasure is very much connected in Scripture and uh, among the serial killers to death. The killers describe an ultimate sexual pleasure gained in humiliating their victims and their victims' body. The ultimate humiliation is found in torturing and killing their victims and then desecrating. The bodies, torturing and killing, gives them a kind of feeling of power where they have felt power they have been humiliated and shamed. They turn this over and to kill and humiliate another is a real world sort of power, the ultimate sort of power, and read here, pleasure, which the state as well as the individual potentially yields. For example, the torture and humiliation of Christ and crucifixion carried out by Rome, but vicariously enjoyed by all who watched, by the children of Rome, by the Jews. The Jews swear their allegiance to God, Caesar, you know, the God, Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. In spite of the fact that their religion is pitted against this sort of blind, idolatrous allegiance. And so his death gains for his killers the socio-religious powers of Rome and Israel, the Jews, in John's description. It gains the godlike feeling of power, or at least identification with the Caesar God. Isn't it this exulting and power enjoyed by every killer, precisely that which Christ is overcoming? The killings carried out by Caesar, Mao, Stalin, Hitler, or any warmongering demigod are not a realm apart from the serial killer, nor are they realm apart from the corporate killing, whether by tribe, clan, state, or mob, in which all peoples are implicated. Everyone would seem to be implicated in the same elemental forces of humiliation, shame, perceived powerlessness, and the attempt to gain power over and through death, whether individually or corporately, that is perhaps illustrated in the serial killer, but illustrated in the psychology of a mind, the psychology of the death drive. The point is not to reduce all people to the same moral level, but rather to suggest that all are infected in varying intensities with the universal problem, traceable in the sickness, the worst presentation of the disease, of the serial killer, the neurosis, maybe in a culture that is not our own. Isn't this precisely the implication of placing ourselves and our sin, as in the old hymn, at the foot of the cross, as part of the cause behind the cross? And so the difference I'm drawing out is not to suggest some mysterious similarity between all sinners before God, but rather 
to demonstrate that the murderous forces which put Christ on the cross and the murderous forces at work in the serial killer, in culture, in the, the psychology that the culture inflicts us with, all have their genealogy in a universal condition which affects us all. We can see this, this genealogy. And the good news is that Christ's death is not simply another murder, but along with his life and resurrection is an uncovering of the resistance or symptom that killed him, and which lies behind every murder, every life given over to violence and death. His is not an overcoming through resistance of either the Freudian kind or the violent kind, but an acceptance and exposure of the workings of this power portrayed in the ultimate violence wrought against him. That is, he absorbs it. So Christ's form of remembering, repetition, and working through is not on the Freudian model. It's not a final acceptance of the symptom. Paul relates the dissolution of his ego directly to the crucifixion reenacted in his own life. I no longer live as I have been crucified, he writes, but Christ lives within me. The remembering and repetition enacted by Christ overcomes the boundary of individual experience. The deception of, re of sin, you know, repeated in every eye, is dispelled in the dissolution death of this eye, which is a resistance formation, which is a symptom, which is the death resistance. You will not b die, you know, you'll be like the gods. It's a remembering Christ in the manner and with the full meaning given at the Lord's Supper overcomes the resistance of sin, of the blocked memory of the symptom. And thus the disciples recall the moment as the point of intervention in which when it happened they did not immediately apprehend but now they can understand this intervention and so too can we all the remembering and repetition of christ worked through in walking as he walked breaks through the fabrication uh, the symptom of neurosis the denial of peter the fear of all the disciples portrayed in the primordial symptom the ego or i the serial killer, the potentate, the apostle, the low-level sinner, all, you know, all cultures, all peoples, the first Adam have fallen short, certainly to different degrees with different effects, but the genealogy of the disease is the same. In the same systemic way, the, the New Testament identifies sin. The perspective given to us in salvation is that we can concretely follow the system of sin, maybe most clearly in its degraded form. But in salvation, then, we can come to see the degradation of the first Adam in the universal. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.